Now let's open our Bibles again to Matthew's Gospel as we have been working our way through Matthew and now come to the Transfiguration, chapter 17 of Matthew's Gospel. Let us briefly pray before reading. Our Father, we turn to you because we are in desperate need of the work of your Holy Spirit. The Word of God preached and proclaimed is your Word and inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us without error. But Father, what we ask for now is for hearts to hear it, to receive it, to believe this Word. So tenderly take every heart into your sovereign hands and blow, we pray, kindle a flame within each heart. And that that flame may blaze throughout our congregation to the glory of the one who loved us and gave himself for us is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17, beginning with verse 1 through verse 13. This is the word of God. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, It is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. I remember a radio interview in which there was a young lady who was a student at Davidson College. She was a spiritually minded woman. She recognized that she was a spiritual being and she had been brought up in the Presbyterian Church. And then in her college years, she journeyed east and she learned about eastern religions and eastern mysticism. And she came back still calling herself a Christian, but a pluralist Christian. She began to blend Eastern meditation with Christian worship and still thought that she could be a believer in Jesus. She said that she can no longer assert that Christ is the only way. 
but that other religions provide that way to heaven as well. Now, the view of that young woman is more and more typical in our culture and in our society, but nothing could be further from the truth, people of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is no religionist. He is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, who will brook no rival. This event that we read this morning in chapter 17 of Matthew serves to highlight the uniqueness, the incomparability of the Son of God. And so I want us to see that in our text today. First, a revelation of Jesus' uniqueness. A revelation of Jesus' uniqueness. Do you see his unique person here in this text? First of all, we are told that Jesus took these three disciples up on a high mountain. Now, put this setting with the two heavenly visitors, Moses and Elijah. Moses, you will remember, received the revelation of God on Mount Sinai. Elijah received the revelation of God on Mount Horeb. Now the disciples on this mount are shown a vision of the glory of God. Partly fulfilling what we saw last week in chapter 16, verse 28, when Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, here they see something of the power and glory of the Son of Man coming in his kingdom on this high mountain. We are told as we move along that Jesus was transfigured before them. The word means to transform or to change in form. We derive our term metamorphosis from this word in the Greek New Testament. Jesus' appearance was altered. He changed before them. Something of the splendor of the age to come and the power of the consummated kingdom is displayed as Jesus is transfigured before his disciples' eyes on the mount. And then we read also a brightness. Do you see it in verse 2? And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. The glory of the God-man shone to Christ's disciples. How dare we put him on the level of mere Eastern mystics, philosophers, and religionists? Christ shines in the brightness of the glory of the Ancient of Days. Christ shines in the glory that is his inherently. So we are told by Paul in 1 Timothy, he is the one who is the only sovereign, king of kings, lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. But as we move along, we see not only that he brings this revelation on the mountain, is transfigured before them in the brightness of his glory, but also it mentions the cloud in verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son. The cloud is associated in the Old Testament with the Exodus and associated with the glory that will come at the end of the age. Essentially, the idea is the presence of the living God is shown by the Shekinah, the glory of God. But the cloud also veils his awesome glory. What mortal could see it and live were he not veiled in his brightness before their eyes? And then there is this great voice that comes from heaven. We read in verses 5 and 6. This bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
So when the father commends his own son, he does so in the language of Scripture. Jesus is commended by his father. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him, which is a combination of three Scripture passages from Psalm 2-7, Isaiah 42-1, Deuteronomy 18-15. How is that for a high view of Scripture? That when God commends his own son, he does so with his own book. He does so with the language of the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And consider that it is the eternal and beloved Son in whom he was well pleased that the Father gave for our sins to be our Redeemer on the cross. No wonder then, seeing this bright, transfigured Jesus before them, hearing this voice from heaven, that the disciples are filled with terror, we are told in verse 6. Not simply a good teacher, not a moralizing philosopher. Look with Peter and James and John, and behold, this is God the Son. In the glory that he had with the Father before ever the world was and to which he would return. This is the uniqueness of the person of Jesus. The transfiguration experience demonstrates to his disciples not only his messiahship, but his sonship, that he is God, the son who came to redeem sinners from their sins. Do you see him here? Do you see him as God, God in all of his glory that shines forth before these three disciples and before our eyes in the sacred text? It brings to mind that wonderful statement of Milne's in his exposition of John's gospel when he says, if Jesus Christ shares the nature of God, we are called upon to worship him without cessation, obey him without hesitation, love him without reservation, and serve him without interruption. Is that the desire of your heart and of your life as you see Jesus exalted in this passage? So we see the uniqueness of Jesus as the Son, but also we see the uniqueness of his work as well. Now he talks with Moses and Elijah. We're told in verse 3, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. He talks with Moses and Moses with him because he is about to inaugurate the second exodus and lead his people out of the Egyptian bondage of sin. He talks with Elijah the prophet because Elijah was regarded as the forerunner of the end of time. The whole event shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament revelation and the inaugurator of the age to come. But the age to come will come at great cost. Moses and Elijah were wilderness prophets who suffered rejection, as we are told at the end of these verses in verses 10 through 13. The kingdom will come with the rejection also of the suffering servant of Jehovah. Now remember that we read last week, verse 21 of chapter 16, when Jesus said from that time he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Do you see him here in his glory? Do you see him here in his majesty? But also do you see the glory with which he had with the Father in eternity past, but this same Jesus must come down the mountain and go to a cross. 
that the age to come that is demonstrated in the glory and the shining of Jesus' face comes at the high cost of his own shed blood on Calvary. Do you see him in his glory, but do you see him also in his sheer and utter condescension and humiliation for you and me to save us from our sins? This, yes, is Christ the Son in all the glory he had with the Father before the world was, the glory to which he will return, but also this is Christ who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. You see him in his glory? Yes, but do you also see that he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? And do you, some of you, reject him still, who sit here this morning? Who week after week hear that Jesus is the Son of God, come to save sinners? Who hear always that this is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who became flesh that he might save sinners from their sins? That this is the God who took upon himself human nature to go to a cross and save sinners? And are there those who hear these things and you reject him still? Oh, let me warn you, my friend. Let me remind you what the book of Hebrews says about this awesome matter. When in the book of Hebrews, we are told in chapter 10, verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. There is no other atonement to remove your sin. There is no other Savior who can save you from your guilt. There is no one to whom you may go for the removal of the stain of your soul. There is no one else who can forgive you of your awful iniquities. Reject Christ and you reject salvation. Reject Christ and you reject all hope. Reject Christ and you lose all. There is only one fountain open for the forgiveness of sins, and that is the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Come to Him, come to Him. He's the only fountain of life, the only fountain for the cleansing of sin. Do you hear these things? Yes, you know intellectually He's the Son of God. Yes, you know intellectually that He went to the cross. But do you know Jesus? Do you know the Savior for yourself? You see His unique person. You see His unique work. He is our Samson, who with His own mighty hands has brought destruction down upon Himself to save us from our sins and iniquities. He is the God of glory. He is the mediator in whose hands all authority has been given for the salvation of his people. But I ask you, can you hear these things and remain cold? Can you hear these things and not believe them? Are you hearing these things week after week, but you are indifferent to them? Are you? Answer that within your heart. Do you not think that you should believe in Jesus? Do you think that some philosopher can save you? He cannot. Do you think that some moralizer can save you? He cannot. Do you think that some religion can save you? It cannot. 
Do you think that some teacher from the East can come and save you? He cannot. Only Jesus can save you from your awful sins and iniquities. There is no other. Let it be said. Away with this coexist that we see everywhere. My friend, Jesus Christ will brook no rivals and He will not coexist with anyone who claims to be the Savior. There is only one name under heaven given whereby men must be saved and that is the name Christ Jesus. And people of God, you know this within your heart. And do we tell others about it? Are we silent? Do we receive these truths every week and we tell no one during the week? We speak with no one about these things. We share this glorious gospel with no one. Don't you think you should? That since you've seen something of the glory of Christ and the wondrous of his salvation, that you should take these truths to others? You know the old definition of evangelism, don't you? It's one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. That's what you and I are called to do. Well, this is the unique person of Christ and the unique work of Christ. But the unique person and work of Christ also calls upon you and me to exhibit a unique approach to life. That's the second thing, a unique approach to life. Now, did you notice Peter's response to this strange event of the transfiguration when in verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. As usual, Peter just doesn't get it, does he? And I'm too much like him. Are you? So you see, he thought that the Feast of Booths was being fulfilled and that the eternal Sabbath rest for the people of God had arrived. He thought that he'd won in his debate with Jesus in chapter 16 when Jesus said he would go to the cross and he said, Not you, Lord, never you, Lord. Peter wanted to leap right over Jesus' suffering directly to glory. He wanted to escape the cross. Let's just build these booths and we'll live here forever. The Sabbath rest of the people of God has finally come and finally arrived. Now you hold that in mind and listen to the conversation between Jesus and his disciples after the transfiguration. They're on their way down the mount. The disciples are perplexed because they still do not understand the mission of Jesus. And Jesus helps them to see that Elijah must come. And that Elijah is John the Baptist. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He fulfilled that Old Testament teaching and prophecy. And just as John suffered, so he must suffer. So he says in verse 12, So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their Whose hands? Well, he told us in 1621, at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Jesus' mission will only be understood, he says, after the resurrection from the dead, he says in verse 9. Now, does this have anything to say to you and me about how we live? Does this have anything to say about the life that results from Jesus' unique mission? It does. It says this to you and to me, believer in Jesus. It says that the cross precedes the crown. It says that the pain precedes the glory. That the follower of Christ will fellowship in the suffering of Christ and there will be conformity to his death before we enter into the glory that is to come.
It says to us that the servant is not above his master, that if the master suffered, so will the servant. It says that the character of Jesus is drawn deep down in our hearts through the suffering that comes to us in Jesus' name and for his glory. Now, Peter didn't understand this right now. At this point, Peter holds to a, quote, prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. He thinks that you can just set aside the suffering, go immediately to glory. Not so, says Jesus. The life that is demanded of those who follow me is that they see me suffer and bleed on a cross as their substitute to save them from their sins, and then the disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There will be suffering through much tribulation. We enter into the kingdom of God. And Peter came to understand this, and by divine inspiration, he wrote an entire book about it, and we call that book First Peter. It's all about how to suffer Christianly, And he says in chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter came to understand the cross precedes the crown. And there are few truths that Christians so try to evade as that one. Lord, why is this happening to me? Lord, if you're a good God, why am I suffering this way? Lord, if, 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 when he tells us plainly that suffering is ordained for the Christian, for God's glory and our good and the spread of his kingdom and name in this fallen world. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you, Christian. God says it will come, that you can expect it to come. Because there's no other way that the character of Christ can be deeply drawn way down in your soul, but through suffering Christianly in the name of Christ and in the power of the Spirit of God. And it is true that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to that glory that will be revealed in us. But nonetheless, there are sufferings in this life. And the Lord teaches us. And we become joyful in our suffering. Joyful because of fellowship with our Lord. The Christian learns not simply stoic resignation, but joy in the midst of suffering. Because we are concerned that he make us the people he wants us to be. And that he reproduce within our lives the character of Christ and conform us to the image of his own son, Jesus Christ. Do you see that, people of God? Do you see that happening in your life? Do you understand that that's the truth? Let me give you a part of pastoral counsel that I and you, we all need to learn. Do not, do not, do not always dream for something else and miss God where you are. All I can see is my concern to get out of the sickness, away from the trouble, out of the circumstance. And you're so focused on the circumstance, the problem, the illness, which are real. I don't minimize how hard and difficult these things are, but we're so focused there. All we want is to get out of the trouble. We aren't keeping our gaze on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, so that we become... Christ-like in the process. Do not always dream for something else and miss God where you are. There's a third thing we see in the text. 
And that is a unique message, a unique person, unique work, a unique approach to life. Now we see a unique message. For God the Father says about his Son in verse 5, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Hear Him. Listen to Him. Now this is an allusion to Deuteronomy 18.15, when Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to Him you shall listen. And God the Father says that prophet prophesied of old by Moses in Deuteronomy 18 has arrived. He's the prophet, the priest, and king of his people. He is the fulfiller of all Old Testament revelation. He fulfills the promises and the prophecies of old. Jesus is the very climax of revelation. He is unique in his person, unique in his work, and now see him as unique in his revelation of the Father to needy sinners like you and me. So do you remember the young lady from Davidson College? She went east, and now she's become a pluralist Christian, she says, mingling Christianity and Eastern mysticism. My friend, when one says that Hindus are Christians, they simply don't know it. Or when one says the faithful of all religions are worshiping the same God that the Christian worships, We completely compromise the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is totally unique. Only those who hold to the faith once delivered to the saints tenaciously, Jesus the only way. Only those can speak credibly with mosques and temples now becoming a large part of our landscape. For Pastor McDonald read to us from Isaiah 45 this morning, Jehovah himself saying, I am the Lord, there is no other. Who is Jehovah? It is Jesus. I am the Lord, there is no other. The Father says of his Son, hear him in all of his glory, majesty, and uniqueness. Hear him. So the question then in your heart and mind should be, how? How do we hear him? Well, turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, Peter the Apostle writes, long after the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to heaven, 2 Peter 1.16 and following. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now Peter is talking about the transfiguration here. He's looking back. He's remembering the transfiguration. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And as we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention 
as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So in this passage in 2 Peter, he answers the question, how do we hear the Son? Peter compares the prophecy of ancient times with the light shed on it now, and he says that simply makes that old prophecy more sure to us. It's as if the disciples were saying, we saw him on the mount in light and glory and majesty. Now in view of the fact that he is the fulfiller of the word and he has come, the word of God is even more sure to us. Where do we hear him? We hear him in this book. We hear him in his word. We hear him speak in the Bible. Would you hear the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest? You hear it here in this book. Would you hear the voice of Jesus say, I pardon you from your sins? You hear him speak in this book. Would you hear him say, I will take you home to glory? You hear him speak in this book. This word, this more sure word of prophecy, because Jesus was transfigured, went to a cross, and rose from the dead. That's what Peter is saying to us in 2 Peter chapter 1. In the name of God, stand fast in this truth, people of God. Hear his word, submit to his word, get rid of those boxes in life in which you think of the gospel here and you fail to apply it to every area of living. Arouse your spiritual vigor. Hear him in all of life. And do not give in to the irreverence of modern thought. Follow your Lord who said, the scripture cannot be broken. The scripture cannot be broken. For people of God, our goal is not to adjust the Bible to our age and culture. Our goal is to adjust our age to the Bible. Hmm? That's the goal. The goal is not to adjust the Bible to our age, but to adjust our age to the Bible. Hear him in his word, but there's something more we know from Holy Scripture. That if you're going to hear Jesus speak in his word, there must be something else. There must be the powerful, sweet, gentle, but effectual work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. When I was a boy, and I was growing up under Pastor Tumblin, I am sure that Pastor Tumblin, Bible-believing man that he was, presented the gospel from his pulpit hundreds of times. Over and over and over again, I'm sure that I heard the gospel. But when I came to faith in Christ, you know what I said? I've never heard this before. Some of you know exactly what I mean. Yes, you had heard it with the ear attached to the side of your head, but you had not heard it with the ear of the heart. You had never heard it before. Well, I had heard it. I didn't want it. I had heard it. I didn't like it. I had heard it. I didn't care about it. I had heard. I set it aside. 
in my great iniquity and sin. I had heard it, but I sat there and didn't listen to the preacher just like someone's doing this morning. But let me tell you, when God the Holy Spirit opened my heart, he said, you'll hear that preacher this morning. You'll hear him today. Listen, the presentation of the Word of God is like this. We're all from central Florida. We know what it's like when we have this great sheet of lightning that comes across the sky. Well, that's the general presentation of the Word of God to all sinners every week. There it is. It shines across the sky. It lightens up and then it goes away. And so there are sinners who sit under the gospel, and sometimes that's all they see. There's a a bright flash of light, and then it goes away. They leave the service. It never bothers them again. But then we also see in central Florida, do we not, that lightning that comes down in a great streak, and it strikes its object. It hits the goal. That's what God did for me when I was a boy of 13 years old, and he opened my heart to the gospel. I had seen the streak of lightning in the sky. I had seen the flash. didn't mean a thing to me. Then God on that particular day said, David McWilliams, I'm going to take my gospel right down to your heart. I'm going to cause your heart that did not want him to want him, that did not desire him to desire him. I'm going to open your heart by my gentle but sovereign operations. You're going to believe in my name today. And he opened my heart and I believed on his name because God and his sovereignty did it through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the great need. And that's why I plead with you, people of God, for your prayers. What what congregation will allow their ministers to go into the pulpit and preach without the prayers of their people? Who are you if you're not praying for me and for Jeff? Because it's all in vain without the power of the Holy Spirit. Do we want to see the people of God grow in grace, the lightning strike? Do we want to see converts? Do we want to see those who are lost come to Jesus, the lightning strike? And pray that the Holy Spirit will bless in the powerful way that only He can to open the heart. Otherwise, when a man or woman hears the gospel, the gospel is just like a statue to them. It looks alive, but it's dead. What must happen is there must be life breathed into it so that it becomes for their soul a living gospel. It's like a painting. The painting may be beautiful. They may understand it. They may be able to to say much about it. They may be able to critique it as 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 a piece of art. But it's just there until life is breathed into it and the scene becomes reality. That's what the Holy Spirit does with his gospel. He makes the gospel alive and he makes the sinner alive to receive that living gospel. You see, the problem is not in the signal, the radio signal. It goes out clearly. The problem's in the receiver, the heart. The receiver has to be changed so that we can receive the signal. That's what the Holy Spirit does. This is my beloved son, hear him. And when we hear him, what do we hear? Well, principally, principally, three things. Fundamentally, three things. First, we hear the cross. We hear that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We hear that Jesus went to the cross and died for sinners. In verse 5 of chapter 17, when we have these words, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, many New Testament scholars believe that there is a verbal correspondence between this and the Greek translation of Genesis 22, 12, and 16. When Isaac is told to take his son, his beloved son, and sacrificing. So what is being told to us here is what did not happen with Isaac, Abram's son. He was not sacrificed. Did happen with the beloved of the father, the son. He was sacrificed. 
for sinners? Do you see your need of a Savior? Do you see that you need the precious blood of Christ to atone for your sins and wipe away your guilt? But also, it speaks to us of the resurrection. As Jesus told us in chapter 16, verse 21, that he would suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And as he says in chapter 17, they will understand this after the resurrection. We are now able by the Spirit of God to hear the Son and view everything in light of his resurrection from the dead. And it also points us, listen to this, when the Spirit of God is at work opening the heart, it also points us to the glory of the age to come. In other words, to the second coming of Jesus. Because isn't that what is happening here in Matthew chapter 17? What is the transfiguration? This is the glory the Son had with the Father before all worlds. This is the glory to which he returns after the cross through his resurrection and ascension. And this is the glory that we will see when he returns with his angels and he judges the world. The transfiguration is a foretaste of the glory of God. Listen to my friend J.C. Ryle, my friend through his books. The world has not yet done with Christ. Myriads talk and think of him as one who did his work in the world and passed on to his own place like some statesman or philosopher, leaving nothing but his memory behind him. The world will be fearfully undeceived one day. That same Jesus who came 18 centuries ago in lowliness and poverty to be despised and crucified shall come again one day in power and glory to raise the dead and change the living and to reward every man according to his works. The wicked shall see that Savior whom they despised but too late and shall call on the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the face of the Lamb. Those solemn words which Jesus addressed to the high priest the night before his crucifixion shall at length be fulfilled. You shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power and coming in the clouds of heaven. The godly shall see the Savior whom they have read of, heard of, and believed and find like the Queen of Sheba that the half of his goodness has not been known. They shall find that sight is far better than faith, and that in Christ actual presence is fullness of joy. Yes, he will come again in glory. Now yesterday, after our glorious service of worship of the living God, when Eurus Dick, in the presence of God, when we praised God for Eurus, afterward on, on the graveside, I was privileged to ride in a car with several of Willie's relatives. I thought Willie was the only one who in two minutes' time when you get with him begins to talk about grace and mercy. And No, he's, he's not the only one. His whole family's that way, like we should be. And we were talking about many things. We were talking about the grace of God, the mercy of God. We were talking about Holy Scripture, the gospel of God to save sinners. I thought revival was going to break out right in the car. (laughs) And then Willie's sister says to me as we talk about death, 
We talked about the judgment. She said to me, you know, there's an appointment no one will miss. You can miss an appointment to a doctor, but you're not going to miss miss the appointment at the judgment seat of Jesus. That's true. You can miss the appointment for the doctor. You can miss your coffee appointment. You can miss your appointment with some lawyer. Let me tell you, my friend, there is not one of us here that will miss the appointment when Jesus comes again to judge the quick and the dead. None of us will miss that appointment. Not one of us. So I call upon you to come to Jesus. Come to Christ. Because there is only one refuge for sinners, and that's Jesus. Only one fountain to cleanse, and that's his blood. Only one Savior of sinners. No Eastern mystic. Jesus, the Son of God, who died for sinners, the only Savior, the only Redeemer of sinners like you and me. And so I plead with you, do not on that day, do not on that day, let no one here say, Scripture said, hear Him. And I said, no, I will not. My friends all said to me, hear Him. And I said to my friends, I will not. My very conscience within my heart said, hear Jesus. And I defiled my conscience and would not hear Jesus. The Father's voice in the Word said, hear Him. But I did not. The Gospel minister as the ambassador of God said, hear Him. And I did not. I would not. For those in that day, Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Read again verses 4 through 8. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. If the Holy Spirit takes his word, opens your heart, and you begin to contrast yourself with his majesty, it is understandable that terror will fill your soul. Look at this great sovereign God. Look at my own sinful soul. I'm filled with terror as I think upon his holiness. I'm filled with terror as I think upon the just judgment of God that I deserve. But that same Holy Spirit, Jesus' hand through the Holy Spirit can touch you and say, rise and have no fear. Yes, even in the presence of my majesty, have no fear. Because, my friend, I paid the debt and I paid it in full. And because you now trust in me by my grace, you do not owe that debt anymore It is paid, it is paid in full. As Brother Dick said yesterday, it is paid, it is paid in full, and no installments. It's paid. 
Now you can rise up, rise up, and not be afraid, not be afraid. Not be filled with terror anymore. And they lifted up their eyes, and they saw no one but Jesus only. And that's the goal here. May God, the Holy Spirit, so take his word that you hear him. And with the eye of faith, you behold only one Savior, only one to remove your sin, only one to save you from the judgment to come. And that one is Jesus. Jesus. Jesus only. Jesus only. Jesus only. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.